Whether you're fly fishing in a stream, getting those ankles wet, or deep in the ocean casting nets, fish nerds, fish nerds, fish nerds, it's a podcast. Just for the hell of it! Fried in a basket or broiled in a pan, eat it raw like you're in Siam. Hello fish and nerds. welcome to the Fish Nerds, the show about fish, fish fishing, and eating fish. The show that's always interesting, usually funny, and mostly true. I'm Clay Groves, Chief Executive Fish Nerd, Licensed Fishing Guide, your best friend. Super happy to be back with you this week. It's been a weird, weird month and week, and everything's going crazy. But I'm happy to be here, and I'm kind of lucky, too, because this week I am barely on the show. We got a little help from our friends. We get by with that. Uh, so first up on the show, we're going to have Tim Beat, who's a listener, who wrote a little essay about some of his antics as a, fishing as a kid, some of the cruel things we do as kids while fishing. Kind of a little food for thought. Love to hear your feedback on it. We love Tim. He's a newer newer listener, but really involved and a lot of fun. And we always welcome, welcome uh, new people onto the show. After Tim... Uh, the crappie hippie is back. Man, he is just making time to record and edit and experiment like crazy. And he interviewed Nicole Stone, did a lot of science about lure color and the effects of water and color and depth and all the things you want to know about fishing with colors. Do you need more than one shade of blue or white or yellow or red? Well, all those questions get answered when... When the crappy hippie joins us with Nicole Stone coming up in just a minute. So first up, we're going to jump right in with Tim Beat's essay. So Tim, it's all you, kid. Welcome. When I was a kid, there was a pond in the woods about a quarter mile from our house. My friends and I lived at that pond every free moment we had to spend. In the language of a 10-year-old from Massachusetts, the pond was wicked cool. In truth, the pond was wicked pissa, but that term would not have met with my parents' approval. For those not familiar with the term wicked pissa, it can roughly be translated as gloriously wonderful. But what 10-year-old is going to call a pond gloriously wonderful? While we always took our fishing rods to the pond, we did much more than fish. In the spring, after the ice melted and the hockey boards began to float, We made rafts and pulled around like gondoliers on the canals of Venice. The pond was used for hockey and figure skating in the winter. When the fishing was slow in the summer, we played a game called survival by catching leopard frogs and tossing them into the middle of the pond. The first frog to make it to shore without getting chomped by a pickerel or bass was the winner. Although we preferred to see the water erupt like a geyser around them. As ten-year-olds, our rule of fishing was that there were no rules. We'd attempt any fishing method, the crazier the better. One day, a particularly cocky friend claimed he could catch a fish using only a small straight stick as a hook. He'd never done it before, but that didn't diminish his confidence. With wagers placed, he tied the end of his line around a three-inch stick, which he in turn stuck into a chunk of hot dog. After about five minutes, a bullhead ate the hot dog, and he yanked on the line hard enough to turn the stick in the fish's gullet. I lost four pieces of bazooka bubblegum on that bet. A small price to learn a technique that might save my life if I was ever stranded without food in the Amazon River Basin. Rather than mope about my lost bazooka or complain about my buddy's unorthodox fishing method, 
I blurted out the phrase uttered by millions of 10-year-olds from around the world whenever they see something crazy. Hey, let me try that. We spent the entire afternoon catching bullhead on stick hooks and slapping each other on the back with each fish. We were so happy you'd have thought we discovered a cure for cooties. While some innovations come from 10-year-olds making bets, many come from 10-year-olds making dares, especially the infamous double dog dare. The double dog dare was responsible for Billy Johnson eating a live grasshopper, as well as the invention of fishing rod wiffle ball in which, one, the fishing line is tied to the wiffle ball, two, the ball is pitched by casting it as hard as possible toward the batter, and three, the ball is reeled in after it is hit. Mostly what we hit was the batter. But the most infamous double dog dare I ever witnessed had nothing to do with fishing, although it was related to water. It resulted in my friend Mark riding a stolen bike five miles home without any clothes on. And that wasn't even the dare. We were in high school, and it was a sweltering summer night. Bored teenagers driving around a small town spelled trouble. And when someone dared Mark to go swimming in a stranger's pool, the double dog dare was on. Mark wasn't the type who needed a double dog dare to do that type of thing, but teenage etiquette dictated that the double dog dare be issued and accepted. When Mark agreed, the rest of us decided it would be foolish not to join him in the pool. There were two carloads of us driving around that evening, and that was Mark's undoing. When the pool owner burst out his back door screaming at us, we all bolted to the nearest car and sped away. Twenty minutes later, we realized Mark was in neither of the cars. His clothes, however, were in one of the cars. After borrowing a bike that he later returned, Mark rode five miles home, buck naked. We were all so impressed by his feet that if we had the money, we would have erected a statue of Mark naked on the bike. It would have been the perfect addition to the town square, right next to the Civil War monument. What does all this have to do with fishing? While the history of fishing isn't always clear on it, I suspect most fishing innovations occurred because of the bets and or dares of 10-year-olds. Fly fishing likely started in the 1300s when a 10-year-old English lad bet his mate he couldn't catch a fish using only a feather as bait. When his mate set the hook, the scream, hey, let me try that, could be heard for miles and fly fishing was born. Even the concept of casting upstream with dry flies was probably a dare, although nobody ended up riding home naked on a bike. That concept would not be invented until 1979 across the ocean in Massachusetts. That brings me to Tenkara fishing. The whole Tenkara rod concept and reverse hackle fly sound like an invention from a 10-year-old's dare, if I ever heard one. Sure, some adult perfected the concept and branded it as Tenkara, but there's some unknown Japanese kid we have to thank for accepting the original double dog dare to catch a fish on a fixed line pole with a strange looking fly. When I first fished with a tenkara rod and hooked a huge fish, I thought the rod was going to explode. As an adult, this was of concern to me. As a 10 year old, I would have thought an exploding rod was a brilliant idea. In fact, if a rod manufacturer had advertised its product as guaranteed to explode when you hook a large fish, we would have pooled all our paper route money just to buy one and test it. If we weren't able to quickly hook a large fish, we would have tied the line to the belt of Billy Johnson's four-year-old brother and told him there were freshly baked cookies inside the house. Unfortunately, as we age, we sometimes forget that the only rule in fishing is that there are no rules. 
except those created by your local DNR. We become engrossed in our favorite fishing method and are skeptical of anyone who varies from our personal form of fishing. Those vilified for their methods include bait fishers, spin fishers, fly fishers, tenkara fishers, bass fishers, carp fishers, musky fishers, bluegill fishers, those who use a tenkara rod in still or warm water, those who catch fish other than trout with a tenkara rod, those who tie flies with synthetic materials, mop fly aficionados, those who don't tie their own flies, and those who keep a single fish any time during their life. Thank goodness nobody is against naked bike riding. There's nothing wrong with finding enjoyment in a single method of fishing and working to perfect it. It's a gratifying experience, especially as we get older. But more and more of us are turning into that guy who lives on the corner and yells at kids when they cut across his lawn. Instead of shouting, hey, let me try that, we scream, that's not real fishing. The sheer exhilaration we had fishing when we were 10 has been clouded by an overpowering impulse to be right about something any 10-year-old would find ridiculous. I think we were smarter when we were 10. Anything you want to do fishing is wicked pissa. Just don't tell my parents I said that. Thanks, Tim. And Tim's been giving us lots of food for thought on the Fish Nerds Facebook group as well, asking questions, like ethical questions, like why is it okay to hook a, uh, you know, a minnow through its back and use it for bait and not maybe like, uh, you know, a, a frog or a lizard or like, where is your limits? Like, how do you decide what's appropriate? Those are the kind of stuff we're tackling uh, in the Fish Nerds Facebook group, as well as having tons of fun with all kinds of other stuff. I have some strong opinions. We're going to talk about it more next week on the show. I really want to dive deep into it. The week after next, uh, we're going to have John Garrick on. John Garrick's a fly writer, and uh, he's got, agreed to come back on the show. Actually, he asked if he can come on the show. So, you know, John Garrick says, can I come on your show? You say, yeah, of course you can come on my show. So we're going to have John Garrick. I'm, I'm reading his new book right now. And I'm diving deep into it. It's a bunch of essays. You know, if you guys know John, that's how he writes. Uh, always very clever, always very funny. So lots of fun. So without further ado, and no ads this week, just podcast. That's all you get today. Here is the crappy hippie with his interview with Nicole Stone. And they're gonna learn you're gonna learn so much about color and fun. And crappy hippie's been having a very good time. I made the mistake of sending him a good microphone and uh you know, that's not really a mistake. Actually, I, I'm very proud to have set him a good microphone, and he's having a fun time editing and experimenting and trying new things out, getting a little artsy-fartsy, and we just love the crappie hippie. And uh, here he is with Nicole Stone. Energy wave. Diffusion. Nocturnal. Perception. Fishing for walleye was when things got really interesting. It's happening. It's probably like 25 or 20, I I don't know, I'm guessing. (laughs) Arbitrarily, it's a good fish though. Oh, here we go. Pull, 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 pull. You got her head? You got her? You got her. Take her. Here we go. Yeah! Oh my God, I did it! I got it! Yes! <laughs> Woo! Uh-huh. Yes! <laughs> Woo! Yes! Finally! 
Hey everybody, this is Crappie Hippie, your tree-hugging redneck from eastern Kansas, and boy, wasn't last week's episode just awesome. It was so great to get a visit from Dave Callum, the founding father of Fish Nerds, and uh, I joined up listening to the show, oh, a short time after he left the show, but I went back and listened through the whole catalog, so I've heard plenty of Dave Callum episodes, and I just enjoy the heck out of the guy. He has a great radio presence, he's bright, he's funny. Um, he has a strange twist on the world that compliments Clay's, and I just really enjoyed hearing him again. I mean, one of my favorite things about Dave Kellum is the way he laughs. Um, he reminds me of Muttley the dog from uh, Wacky Races. Now, if you're under 100 years old, then you probably don't remember Wacky Races, but there was a character on there. It was a Saturday morning cartoon, you see, and there was a character on there named Dick Dastardly that had this dog named Muttley. It had a horse kind of wheezy laugh, just like Dave Callum. Um, it's too much for me. All he could just say, you know, rock in the grass and laugh, and I'd laugh too. Anyway, great to hear from Dave, and great to get that news story about Rudy the lawyer and his deluded patent search um he's talking all about light penetration and color and and telling you what lure you should pick based on that but i hate to tell it to you rudy but first of all you can't patent stuff that you know animals can do um you can't stop patent stuff that exists in nature uh, i don't know what you're going to do next you know go out and try to patent water uh go to you know uh get a patent on gravity or something you know just give up man and another strike against you is i have a pro angler right here tonight who wrote an article about light and walleye eyesight and how it should affect your lure selection and uh she maintains light and lure, uh, color ain't that important it's just part of a whole series of things you should keep on your mental tabletop when you're walleye fishing and if you overemphasize color and lure selection you may be selling yourself short but I'm not here to tell you about it. She's the one that wrote the article. Tonight we got Nicole Stone from Nicole Stone Outdoors. You can read the article at NicoleStoneOutdoors.com. Let's welcome the Wonder Woman of walleye fishing. She catches more double-digit fish in a year than most people do in a lifetime. Nicole Stone. Let's just get going now. Um, you come from a science background, is that is right? You were an atmospheric uh, analyst, or yeah. So I right. <laughs> no, I uh, I'm an atmospheric scientist by by trade, so that was my bachelor's degree, and then I I actually worked on atmospheric measurements in the clouds, like taking, um, essentially taking planes through storms and collecting data, and then also on the ground, just doing surface based measurements. Uh, and then was pursuing a master's in natural resources. My end goal was actually to get my PhD in natural resources, but then I just decided I wanted to take a different route in life, and here I am. <laughs> so, yeah, that's my background. Wow. Well, we're in love with that sort of thing on the nerds. Um, we have um, – well, I could tell by the way you did the article. It was it – was, we have a college professor that's our chief science correspondent, uh, we call her Doc Martin. She'd have given you an A on your article because you 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 quote your source as well. You you give your source as well. You had everything linked up. Um, awesome. The, yeah, the people on the Facebook group page. Oh, you know they read it. They were you know able to pursue um, it deeper because of all the links and so on. So fantastic and well done. And and um, let's. Let's just go ahead and start off here with the uh, just a quick summary. Um, I, I really like the article. I like the way you broke down 
uh, some of the basics. Tell you, it has a lot of great video asides in it. Uh, it has all the links for to dive down into this information um, much deeper. Uh, but I like people like Nicole because she takes the science and makes it accessible to people like me who love science but aren't scientists or maybe don't, you know, even though I would love to read all the source articles and stuff, some of us just don't have the time. And um, anyway, it's a, it's a great article um, on uh, walleye vision, what they actually see and so forth. And what uh, so I, I'm not going to go through all the ways that uh, wave energy performs and so on. Um, what it basically comes down to is two, two main factors uh, in what a walleye sees are light availability, uh, and that's water clarity, and um, also the weather, um, how much light's coming from the sun. Is it cloudy? Is it sunny? So on. And then is the water clear? Or is it full, full of stuff? Um, the reservoir near me we, we, is Hillsdale, and we have just a water color we call Hillsdale Green. Um, the lake, is, <laughs> yeah, it, it's never like super clear, but it, 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 you know, it might cloud up, but it mainly is just this kind of stained greenish color. And it, it's a decent walleye lake. Um, let me start off with my first question, Nicole. When we talk about walleye, walleye's eyes are really big and mm -hmm. the proportion um you know we all are anthropomorphic and we we say well how does that compare to what a person is you know it's like well yeah a fish eye in general and a walleye uh walleye's eye in particular um are a lot bigger in proportion to their overall body is that correct yes and I think like how you I think when you're looking and, and dealing with this stuff it really is understanding that just in general, the structure of their eye is vastly different than the structure of our, our eye. And that obviously we can take that, you know, all the way to we can take that to a microscopic level, all the way out to just understanding that. And which is what I tried to do in the article, that their structure is very different. Um, they're night feeders. And when you're breaking down what's important in the, in the eye, it's generally rods and cones for color and, and night vision. Um, and that's where you're really going to see from the research that there are some differences. Uh, especially with cone availability in the walleye's eye, which when you're looking at that from, you know, a scientific perspective, um, essentially it makes sense because a lot of times color comes with trade-off. And so we have awesome daytime vision for color, but we, we can't see anything at night, right? Um, no. <laughs> so if you're fishing walleye, you generally fish it, especially in a clear lake, you know, low level or low light conditions. And so their eyes obviously favor that type of environment and the trade-off that generally comes in that type of environment is you know lack of color because they're so rod dominant compared to what we are does that make well, sense it makes absolute <laughs> sense it makes perfect sense i just think that says a lot about when you're thinking about color and how it plays out and the advantage of a species that's really they're they're made for lower light conditions and they tend to go under under ledges under weeds and stuff or, or very deep by the thermocline you know in the heart of daylight so those things all point towards that and then you just have to start looking into the research of why is that like first of all why do we see color you know what is color and then when you start breaking down it's just wavelengths and our ability to process those wavelengths what is their ability to process those like like wavelengths and essentially what it comes down to is not only lack of light so you lose the wavelengths with depth um which i have a lot of different you know information on that in the article and diagrams 
but also just it's scattered, it's absorbed. Um, when different wavelengths of light become scattered or reflected, they ch you know they change our ability to see them because colors mix. So like, how does that relate to walleye? And you find out they just in general lack certain cones. Um, from the the, mo the research I found, uh, the joy of science. I always tell people is there's always more and more research, more and more data, and you're always allowed to adjust you know, your perspective based on that new information. But from what I have found so far, it really is like, they simply don't have the blue cone color that we do. So right there t would tell you, they're not even going to be able to process the color blue, even if that, you know, light is penetrating down through the water and getting to the, the species, which it could, they just don't have the ability to see it from what we have for data right now. Um. Exactly. And, and, uh, that was the, the, the more narrow range of their, um, you know, they, we beat them when it comes to cones and color, but they, they womp us when it comes to, uh, rods and being able to see in the dark. So it's, it's a trade-off, um, that, Absolutely. um, I mean, you know, even compare a walleye's eye to say a yellow perch, uh, it's in the same family. Um, they have a kind of a, you know, kind of that silvery kind of a special eye that just seems, it's just different. I mean, you can tell um, that there's something special about, you know, how they function and, and how they deal with their environment. Right. And so they have like that layer, you'll see like, I don't know, a lot of night vision animals have that layer, that reflective layer in their eye, right. which also obviously is very conducive of or, you know, of, of having low light ability. And obviously again, at the cost, most likely of color, but, um, and what's happening at that, and people can read into that themselves. I'm not an expert on that, but they're actually able to like take extra light and reflect it back into their eye. There's like a whole process people can find online so that they're able to maximize the amount of light available. So light, we can't do anything with, they're able to like take in. And so that's, that that reflective coating that they have, um, and it's got a fancy scientific name they can find online. No, wait, we don't have to look it up on the internet because I am here. My name is Cecil Taxonomous, fancy name, and I am an expert in Latin and all the fancy names in Latin that occur in science. Now, the Latin name for the silvery tissue behind the retina in a fish's eye or any nocturnal animal that has to exist in darkness due to lack of light or because of disruption of light due to turbidity is scrotum elephantitis. What? And who put this in my notes? Who put this in my notes? And, uh, an illustration, no less. Who drew this picture? Hey, hey, crappie yippee. I might have known. Guys, you, you got my picture. See? See how Claire has to ride in the back seat of the car because his uh, junk is in the front seat? Yes, yes, I understand the picture. I've seen Breakfast Club. Thank you very much. Crappy Hippie, you do not know what you have done to the outstanding reputation and the absolute factual trustiness of the Fish Nerds podcast with your antics. Crappy Hippie, are you paying attention? Wow. You're really uptight, man. Uh, um, I'm I'm gonna go get a burrito. Do you you want a burrito? Do I want a burrito? Actually, yes, I would like a burrito. Give me a chicken with black bean, uh, Monterey Jack cheese, and hot salsa verde on the side, please. Okay, like 
cool man you got it um i'll, I'll be back in like you know a little bit all righty then crappy hippie off you go and fare thee well my lad and now back to the subject at hand the name of the tissue that exists behind the retina in the eye of a nocturnal animal or fish that exists in low light conditions that recycles photons back to the optic nerve is called tapetum lucidum I say once again in Latin, the fancy name is Tapetum Lucetum. This has been Cecil Taxonomous Fancy Name. Now back to the enchanting Nicole Stone. But that's essentially what it's doing is it's taking lower light, available, you know, less light and doing more with it and literally pushing that back into their eyes. So, and it's something we obviously lack because our eyes are not reflective. So, you know, one more benefit of being a low light species is that they're able to just take advantage of light that we can't take advantage of at all. So right there is going to affect their ability to see versus ours and their ability to see color versus ours and their environment versus ours. And I think as anglers, we forget there's all these differences. So when you go out and buy a blue lure, like, sure, that lure might work for a million reasons. I'm never saying that it wouldn't, but it's probably not the blue you think that's causing that, you know, result. <laughs> Right, um, and and that uh, that's neat. Okay, so that uh, that um, confirms my suspicion about the walleye's eye being uh, a special. It, it has that reflective layer that's able to uh, uh, recycle light or um, yeah. you use more light, make better use of light, and so on. I, I actually looked up the expression walleye, uh, walleyed, and and what it meant, and and you know, and it's it's not in uh, much literature and so on now but in the old days to say someone stood there wall-eyed meant they stood there with their eyes you know wide open through fear or surprise or something like that yeah and and um also it it uh, exotropic um eye condition where your eyes are trained outward it's kind of like the the um opposite of being cross-eyed um some people used to call that um, condition uh, being wall-eyed, and and um, I don't know. That's kind of picking on the fish. Most fish, <laughs> most, <laughs> most fish stare out to the sides, right? <laughs> right. Um, so, so, they, so they like lack ability. That's a good thing. Like, I guess I haven't looked too much into that area. It's something I'd like to do in the future. But like, their ability to focus is much different than ours. Is essentially what you're saying because of the way that their eyes are structured out versus ours being more forward and in. Um, yeah, it's that, and and I, I you know, I, I tried to do some uh, more background reading just on fish eyes in general because Doc is interested in basically everything uh, uh, science, and she's done uh, some different uh, pieces on the show about you know how some fish can see into the UV spectrum further than us, or into the infrared spectrum further than us. Also about how um, like sharks and skates. Or have the muscles to make their uh, pupil open and shut, but that most fish are environmentally dependent on that. It, the pupil is fixed, and so that's one reason they have to, uh, you know, like like escape because they can't they can't close down their pupil. They've got to just go deeper or get under the weeds or do something to right. compensate. All right. So what we've settled so far is, you know, walleye are different than people, and and they have really cool eyes that are cool in their own fishy way and we we don't need to compare them to ours uh, so let's talk about blue and let's talk about anglers because i i tell you um a shocking number of walleye baits have blue in them um yes they do <laughs> yeah and and 
uh, I mean, I noticed the, the pink and blue is very popular. The chartreuse and blue is very popular. And um, what's your take on that? Is that more of the lure designer or the lure company trying to catch anglers? Or is it possible that since they're going to see most of this, you know, pink and blue is going to look more just like a variation in grayscale to them. Is that part of its perhaps success or appeal? Which do you think more is more the case? Is it the angler confidence that I just happen to like this pink and blue and think it's cool? And so I'm going to fish it, fish it better. Or is it that the walleye says, oh, that's a shade of gray combo that appeals to me? You know, it could be a mix, I'm sure. Um, you know, we do know that, so the wavelength blue is a shorter wavelength that has a little higher energy, so it can penetrate water better. And there's plenty of diagrams out there suggesting that, I mean, all over the internet. And so sometimes I wonder if manufacturers don't kind of leverage those things a little bit. So even, you know, whatever, because I would assume all species have different cone structures. And obviously daytime feeders, bluegill and such probably have a different ability to see color than a walleye. Um, and so when they're just making these lures, I sometimes wonder if that isn't more of the emphasis of just what colors can penetrate water and they kind of leverage that. Uh, and I think a lot of it too, I mean, I know a lot of anglers like to try to match the hatch. I'm not sure like, so with the greens and stuff, that makes a lot of sense to me personally. And again, to me, when I'm looking at, you know, minnows a lot of them look different shades of gray grayish green or whatever like i don't see a bright blue minnow but maybe there is some similarity then to that under the environment i think there's a lot of i think at the end of the day they take as a manufacturer they take different things that they probably see patterns that humans like or that they can use as a reference like blue penetrates the water better and then they use that as a leverage but at the end of the day the angler it's all about angler confidence and you know like when I dropped this article, for example, everybody was just like, well, I went out with my blue, you know, shad wrap and destroyed them. And it was the only color that worked. I'm like, well, did you control all their variables? Nobody controls all the other variables when they're fishing. They're just fishing. But if they're selling a lot of blue lures and seeing a lot of blue success, that just generates more blue lures to be sold. Right. It doesn't matter what the reason is. And so I think there's just that type of trend. Um, I think you're selling to the human for whatever reason. And once they see success, if you sell a lot of blue lures and a lot of people are seeing success, they're just going to generate, they're just going to buy it. They don't care about the 500 other factors that might've affected why that lure works. It's just the easiest factor is, Oh, it was blue. Does that kind of make sense? I don't know. That's like a long winded way to to explain it. (laughs) No, no, it's not, not at all. Um, I, I, you know, I'm just sitting here nodding my head because, I, well, you know, I'm, I'm a lure designer myself. I, I have a lure company called Glasswater Angling, and, and you know, I, I do a lot of, the, the, you know, questions about what, um, you know, fish actually see and, and what anglers actually want. And I've, ever since I was uh, young, I, I was like, well, you know, because back in the day, it was like, oh, I'll fish your colorblind. You know, that's the end of it. So why does any color matter at all? Well, they must see, you know, I, my answer to people would have been, well, they must see gray in different ways or in different combinations. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, yeah, we, uh, blue is the most popular color. I mean, you ask 10 people what's their favorite color, seven of them are going to say blue. And, yep. <laughs> uh, you know, and, and that's just, just human nature and it's just natural. But you know, and like you say, you know, it may be a combination of things. And of course, to be scientific, we've got to say, well, you know, was your lake turbid? Was it a sunny or cloudy day? 
you know, I had a, I had an old gentleman, we were fishing crappie this winter and he told me about how he started using pink because one day he was out fishing with minnows and he just happened to pull one up and the sun was just, just coming up and, and it, you know, when the light shining through that minnow's body, it made it look pinkish. And I see that in bluegill in the wintertime, like a bluegill in the wintertime is basically going to just be silver and purple, you know, and purple's a good uh, winter color around here for uh, crappie and so on. So you've, yeah, you've always got to ask yourself, you know, not, you know, blue is a good color. And if if it's going to make you fish better, um, Mm -hmm. then you want to use it. But that day that it worked and, and silver didn't and yellow didn't and white didn't, there may be you know, they may like, like, you know, 50 shades of gray. They may like that shade yeah, uh, the best <laughs> in that particular condition, but it's not just cause it was blue. You know, it, it, it was blue and cloudy and choppy and exactly uh, whatever time of day. Well, and I think like I, when I go fishing and I'm one of those people that I get just as much caught up in the situation than I am like catching the fish. Like I'm the person that can sit and watch an underwater camera for hours and never drop a line in the water that I'm actually intentionally fishing with. Cause I just love to see behavior. And so something that I've really noticed is like, for me, especially as a walleye angler location and placement is everything. And I mean, you can take it from a macro scale of like the lake you're on, you know, the fish are in a certain pattern and have a certain feeding behavior at that time you can bring it to a micro scale to the point where like you have to be set up on this pot of fish and your lure has to be exactly in the right position on top of this pot of fish. And you have to be doing the right thing on top of this pot of fish to get those fish to bite. And that really comes down to location and presentation slash technique. And I mean, I think a lot of people sit in a boat in there, you know, in an 18 foot boat and someone's up front and someone's in the back and you know, one guy with blue up front is catching them all. Well, the reality is that person's set up on that pot of fish, you know, and they just happen to have their lure, you know, the right height above that pot and they're moving it in a way that is just making those fish bite. Like it is such a finicky game walleye fishing is, especially certain times of the year that, you know, it's, it's just being on that, that, on top of those fish and that's why sometimes some guy on this side of the boat will outfish the guy on this side of the boat and had nothing to do with color and everything to do with placement i i couldn't agree more and the guy in the front of the boat is really mean because he's running the trolling motor and he's got you out <laughs> yeah. over 30 feet of water and he's sitting right on top of the hump so uh when we find yep. out that it's not just bad <laughs> luck but your friend's a jerk uh you're gonna have to deal with that right <laughs> that is perfect yeah or in my case when i'm fishing with my husband and he's running the trolling motor at that moment and he's pulling him up left and right i'm like get on the back it's my turn to be up there <laughs> that's right <laughs> and and um but I, uh gosh i could say so much here i like um you the great uh video of the rainy river where you're just i think that's right I, you're pulling in these monster walleye mm-hmm. and um you referenced what you did your previous trip and how you had to go to a bigger jig because of the current and the conditions, mm-hmm. you know, um, there's just factors like that. Um, guys sitting there struggling and insisting on using a half ounce jig when an ounce is what you need. I'm an ultralight guy. So, you know, a jig weighs an ounce. I'm just like, what? <laughs> <laughs> All you panfish experts are. <laughs> That's how on yeah. it is. Like tiny as it gets. I'm like, sometimes you got upsize just a little bit. <laughs> yeah, I, absolutely. Absolutely. And the idea that, 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 
um, uh, presentation, you know, is, is the one it's hard to, hard to get, um, into your head until someone's just absolutely kicking your behind. And then you become a quick learner, I think. Always learning. I know all the time that's fishing. And that's what this was about was like, this entire article wasn't, I, I definitely got the vibe at times that people, a lot of people, most people loved it. A few people were like, but blue works for me. So it works, which is completely fine to say like this in no way was meant to be like your lure doesn't work. It's like, it's just there to inform people you know, if you're struggling with fishing, think of all these other factors that might be affecting it. Um, and just, this is why, like maybe the color has nothing to do with it. Don't go splurge on a hundred blue lures. Like think about all these other factors and this is why color might not matter. Like it's just there as a tool to reference when you're frustrated or when you, when you need, you know, additional information to make a purchasing decision. It's exactly, it's, it's helping you to expand your, your mental, ground as an angler because we do um get into that that mode uh down here in kansas uh we call it getting your foot in the bucket um which is from farming and if you've ever seen someone step into a bucket and then walk a few steps in it you can kind of get the the mental picture of the emotion going on um you're digging through your tackle box and you're just switching color switching color switching color when maybe you mm -hmm. need to be going to a different weight different technique and so on. Yeah. Exactly. I would recommend that everybody watch some ice fishing videos. Um, yours and Anna's are awesome. Um, Thank you. But my friend Clay is an ice fishing guide. The guy that runs this fish nerds nonsense is, is a awesome. wonderful ice fishing guide, but all y'all really glue yourselves to those flashers and you really can see, Hey, I'm digging this too hard or I'm not digging it hard enough, or, you know, you need to be exactly six inches over the top of those fish, or you need to be right in the middle of the pod. You, you see where I'm going with this? That's a hundred percent. Yes. Like ice fishing is crucial for that. And I think like when, when I started pan fishing with Anna, we always have, you know, fed off each other with information. It was amazing since I've walleye fished my entire life. Like it's an, I, it's more of an aggressive game. You know, you pound the bottom and then she, she's like, slow down, calm down. Cause I'm like just jigging too erratically. And, uh, she just kind of coached me the, the crappy way, you know, like a slow, steady raise, just concentrate on working that fish up slowly, keep it ahead of it so far, like things that I would never have thought of. And I think that in ice fishing, um, just shows you, and you can like really scale down into with ice, like into working those fish. And that shows you how important that also is in open water with all species. Like technique is key. Like it makes such a difference in fish turnover more than color, more than anything, just being able to, you know, put your line in the water and get the right response from those fish and all fish species in all different conditions, you know, respond differently. Well, and, and, and ice fishing, it's just, it's just so neat to be, you know, you, you can do it in open water fishing, but I, I find that ice fishing videos, you get you're watching it happen on a flasher um whereas a lot of times you don't really do that when you fish the open water mm -hmm. and it, it'll make a believer out of you that's for sure yes absolutely okay i'm gonna put you on the spot nicole oh, um, boy. <laughs> i thought it was uh awesome that you put a walleye uh uh with a blue spoon in his mouth in the picture in the article uh just to show yes i did <laughs> yeah and uh, what are your favorite walleye colors? What what ones do you believe in? You know, I've never 
been a big color person period just because I've kind of looked into this stuff before like I'll tell people what color I use because it's just part of the game but like it's not when I'm looking through lures that's generally not the first thing I'm paying attention to I'm looking for the type of lure that I think will work in that body of water so whether it be like a you know a flasher jig in the river or a crankbait in the middle of summer I'm caring more about size and depth than anything uh, so that, those are the things I go by. Obviously, I am human like everyone else. And if my friend or husband is sitting by me crushing the fish, I'll just do whatever I can to get, you know, I'll either take their spot or try to have the closest lure possible. <laughs> but like, I, I don't have any dot. Like when I go to a store, I honestly mean it. I do not sit there and dig through colors. I'm looking way more at what I'm getting for what price and what conditions I'm going to be using it in. The guys use a lot of vibrate baits. Uh, noticed in the videos from the West Cusco and, and um, mm -hmm. uh, that sort of thing. Uh, the Winnipeg trip on a, she got the look, the shape, the size, everything right off. Caught, mm -hmm. use that chrome uh, vibrate bait all the time, um, the whole way. Um, you, uh, a little more variability, but you ended up... Um, getting that uh 30 inch monster on a blue <laughs> on a blue yeah that's i know. Awesome. i laugh about that <laughs> that's great i mean on a blue slab wrap um that was yeah that was i when i so she was definitely the hot hand um she was picking up higher numbers than me for sure and then i was like she had that chrome and i'm like i need something with chrome and i had a couple similar rip and wraps like she did and i just wasn't seeing the results and so then i put on that chrome slab wrap so it had that same shine whether that made a difference or not i will never know and uh but it didn't have any rattles in it and i just was working it obviously if you see the video just like working it aggressively and it just happened to be what that what that fish wanted and why i don't know why that all happened the way it did no angler ever does but you know you could you could guess maybe the shine from the chrome or or maybe just the different or the location again i'm gonna say like that fish came swimming through and i was you know the probably the first bait that was right in front of it and then it worked that bait a little bit and then i got it a lot of times it's really even being set up on what side of the, the shelter you're in i mean that's the name of the game with walleye well absolutely and um you know there like i i, I this is one reason I, I just wanted to talk to you so bad because you're you know i really appreciated that you've got to take a rounded approach uh you can't just be um simplistic think color 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 because uh placement and size mm -hmm. are, you know are, have got to be in your mind and and presentation has got to be in your mind i mean the whole thing about the angle that your lure is coming in sometimes yes. it can it can just be crazy huge i love anecdote i think it's a good way to get started down a road to you know whatever true knowledge actually is it really behooves anglers to study the science side, don't you think? Yes, and that's exactly it. And 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 with anything, that's the difference between that's where we have where we are today with science and technology comes from data and controlling variables. And so there's there unless you're getting paid to do research, no anglers out there controlling variables. We're out there to catch fish, right? So that's where the data and the science and the research comes in. And and anecdotal is great for just fun stories, but I think just throughout life and throughout history you know, data tells us the actual situation and how we should respond. And I think with the information we have available to us nowadays, because the internet is full of it, you can get research papers, you can talk to experts, you can, you can call, you know, you can find a researcher at a university and call them and get questions answered. 
I mean, there's no reason we can't as anglers take our passion to the next level by looking at the science, by talking to the experts and then making more, more informed decisions. Well, and it's also great that there's real nice people like you that make the calls and study the research papers and then write articles that, uh, allow us to consume that stuff more quickly and in a way that we, uh, can understand and absorb more readily. Um, Thank you. <laughs> well, it, it, it's, it's crucial. It's crucial because when you meet an angler, whether they're a, a YouTube celebrity um, or, or whatever inspires you to have confidence in what they're saying, taking their word on it, you know, is um, just a more efficient way to uh, gather the knowledge and believe in what you're hearing. You know what I mean? Yes, absolutely. And I think that's, I think it's important to always have science or information of some sort justifying the information you're putting out there. Obviously, it goes both ways, right? So, like, it's great because all this information is at our fingertips, but that also means there's a lot of misinformation at our fingertips. So, being yes. able to reference research, you know, and, and really communicate with reputable people is important when you're, in, you know, taking in all this information, in my opinion, incredibly important. Doc was going to join us tonight, but bad information and misinformation and this kind of thing is, is something that uh, drives her crazy. It's nice to have trusted sources. And once you, you, you have that, then, you know, you, you, ha you know, um, you know, you have it forever, I guess is what I'm trying to say. You, we can always look forward to your next article. It's going to break down the next science for us. And uh, well, thank you. And thank you for sharing that with your followers and your fans, and your listeners. Um, I think if there was one thing that I want to get out of all this, it is, you know, sharing reputable information, educating and inspiring um, in the sense of like, oh, if she's doing this or learning this technique, then I can do it too. Because I think fishing is such an amazing sport for everyone, just being outdoors. And then having that information can be really empowering and helping your buying decisions and your fishing decisions. And so being that source of information and the fact that you're recognizing me as that is incredibly, uh, it feels great. So thank you. <laughs> well, I am going to go, I'm going to veer off here just a little bit. I don't want to go too far down this road, but um, we're really um, focused on diversity at the Fish Nerds. We have a lot of uh, women in the in the uh, nerd nation and uh we have a um uh we're getting more and more women correspondents and and uh, female input into it and frankly i know that you've mentioned growing up you know you would pick up a magazine or you would watch a outdoor show and trying to learn and so forth and you had to take all your information from men um i think it's really refreshing that we're getting good you know when you talk about trust and so forth i think that it's um awesome that that you know a lady angler such as yourself is putting this information out you know it's not only more accessible to me it's also i think good for the young ladies growing up and looking for people to trust people to um, follow people to believe in and now they've got someone of their own gender that makes it more familiar and easier to um, accept oh thank you well thank you so much for that um i was very fortunate this year to actually fish with a few younger women that were, you know, in their, in their high school, younger teens, and they were incredible anglers for their age. I mean, they just love it and they're passionate. And they, I realized something that I never really experienced before and it was never my goal, but they were just like very excited about fishing with someone that they followed on social media. You know, like I'm not used to being that other person. I'm used to following certain people. I have my list of people that I trust and love getting information from. And then to these younger girls that I was being that person to them. And that was kind of like, wow, it makes you realize 
you know, what you do put out there, the image you do portray is incredibly important because they are looking at that as kind of, you know, a way to navigate the fishing world as a, as a female. And I think like, obviously the same goes for men. Like there's always been amazing professionals in the industry that people can look up to. And so when I was able to connect with these young women, it really made a difference to me. So. Well, it's fantastic. I love that story. And, and, uh, it really does make a difference. I don't want to get into right or wrong or, 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 you know, what should or shouldn't be. I just kind of concentrate on what is. And I know that younger fishers like to see younger fishers and lady fishers want to, you know, see a lady fisher in there. It, it, you, you identify more uh, for different reasons. And, and it's great to have more diversity on the water. That's one thing that's going to save this sport and improve this sport is to let everybody get out there and let's get rid of this idea that it, it's strictly the purview of old white guys like myself. Um, yeah, I think like it comes down to the relatability factor. Um, I think we all love people we can relate to in some form or another. And obviously as a, as a young woman, there's a big sense of relatability when you relate to other women. So I think for all the women out there that are just doing a fantastic job in the fishing world online, like they're growing the sport, you know, we're all growing it together because we're adding all these young women, you know, in, into the sport of fishing and, and what more can we ask for? So it's it's all great. It is all great. Well, Nicole, I could sit here till you know midnight talking to you. You're just amazing. Um, but I'm gonna let you go now. We're I think we've got it covered. I can't tell you how much we enjoyed the article. Um, I'm gonna keep my eye to your website. We can find Nicole on Nicole Stone Outdoors. We've got a website. We've got Instagram. Uh, she's got a Facebook. Um. So y'all can get in touch with this nice person here and, and shoot the bull on fishing and uh, check out what she's doing. Um, she's out of Fargo, North Dakota, believe it or not. Um, <laughs> yep. <laughs> you know, the, the one place that might be actually drier than Kansas, I'm not sure. However. Colder just, for sure. <laughs> yeah, you, you just got to jump the river and you're over in Minnesota and you just got to go north and you're up in Canada. So you're you're pretty well situated there. Absolutely. A lot of big water within a reasonable driving distance. So well, I'm very happy. You stay happy. I'm happy to get to do this interview tonight and get to know you a little better. I appreciate the heck out of it. And you have a great evening. You stay safe. You keep fishing. And we'll catch you next time. Thank you so much for everything. And you too. All right. Well, what a fantastic time that was getting to geek out and talk about light penetration and color selection and angler psychology and all the things that go into uh, what we put on the end of our line when we're out fishing for walleye. Uh, she made a lot of excellent points. Can't hardly argue with the fact that, yeah, you do need to consider a whole bunch of variables and keep all those options on your mental tabletop. And instead of obsessing on a certain color and tearing your tackle box apart, trying to find that green one, you need to ask, am I on the fish? What is the light level like? Am I using a bait that has a rattle or doesn't have a rattle? Is it the same shape? Is it the same size? Uh, there's different things that you need to keep in mind. Uh, don't oversimplify your approach based on color. Don't think that there's some magical pixie color that you can pick uh, to get those walleye to start to bite because as we can see, they have a very narrow color range. They have excellent eyesight. It's not about their eyesight. They have big, huge eyes. They have the Tepatum lucidum. I think I got that right. I don't want Cecil uh, correcting me, um, but they are 
very uh, much able to see in the turbid water. They're very much able to see under low light conditions. That is how they're made. That is what they're made for. Their eye is not like our eye. It belongs to them. It's adapted to them. It's adapted to their world. It's adapted to what they're doing. And you've got to know kind of what that's all about, have an appreciation for it, but never give up on the fact that their color range is narrow. So before you just insist that I got to have a blue one, make sure that you've got a good place to fish, that there's fish in that place, and you're using a lure that is close to what they're feeding, or at least one that'll provoke them into a strike. Anyway, thank you so much to Nicole Stone from Nicole Stone Outdoors. Uh, You can find her at NicoleStoneOutdoors.com. She has Nicole Stone Outdoors Facebook page. Her Instagram is Nicole Stone Outdoors. Uh, She's not hard to get hold of, and uh, you'll enjoy looking at the pictures and at the various adventures that she goes on. Alrighty, all this is Crappie Hippie, your tree-hugging Redneck saying tight lines and Valentines. Peace out. Energy wedge. Diffusion. Nocturnal. Perception. Thanks, crappy hippie. Thank you, Nicole. Hope uh, hope you got a lot out of that. I know I did. I got far too many colored lures in my uh, in my tackle box. I learned. So that's it. So that's it. You've listened to a bunch of fish nerds when you should have been fishing. Big fat, th- big fat. I can't do it. Big fat thanks to Tim Beat for his essay. Huge, huge thank you to the crappie hippie for being a great correspondent and bringing us the interview with Nicole Stone, who we also think. Uh, and until next time, follow the code of the fish nerd, spawn early and often, never trust a free lunch with strings attached, and swim against the current every chance you get. Good night. Whether you're fly fishing in a stream, getting those ankles wet, or deep in the ocean casting nets, fish nerds, fish nerds, It's a podcast. Just for the halibut! Fried in a basket or broiled in a pan. Eat it raw like you're in Siam. Fish nerds. Fish nerds. Fish nerds. It's a podcast.